Please turn with me to John 21 in the Pew Bibles. It's page 907. And again, this is John 21, and we're going to read the entire chapter. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it that to you? Follow, you follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, every once in a while, I thank you for joining us, and then I tell you that this is the perfect kind of text for you to draw a picture. And this is the perfect kind of text this morning for you to follow along in the sermon and draw a picture. Last time I was kind of disappointed in your performance because I only got one or two. So draw a picture this morning of what you see in, in John 21, and I would love to see them afterwards. Adults, I'd be all up for your pictures too if you want to draw them. But you know when that final scene fades to black and the credits begin to roll, Normally, the crowd begins to shuffle out of the room. They gather their stuff, they throw down that last handful of popcorn, they take that last swig of watered-down Coke, then they begin making their way toward the exit. But not always. That all changed on April 14, 2008. On that day, Marvel's first Iron Man debuted. And for once, when the credits began to roll, no one moved. They waited for the credits to completely scroll through, and they were rewarded with a brief epilogue that was a pivotal teaser for what would happen in the next Marvel installment. And it's been the same for the 22 films since. Those credits roll, and nobody moves a muscle, because there's something critical left to be told of the story, and to be seen after the credits have run their course. It may only be like 30 seconds, but it helps round out the current story arc and it propels us into the next one. If you've watched any of the 23 Marvel movies but haven't waited to see what's come after the credits, you've missed out on some really good stuff. So go home today, fire up Disney Plus, and wait till after the credits scroll through. But the epilogue, the thing at the end of the credits, answers the, okay, what's next question for viewers. Sometimes it sheds a little light on a particular character's story arc. Sometimes at the end of the movie, we're like, okay, what happened to that guy? How's his story end? The brief epilogue can answer that very question. Well, this is precisely what's happening in John 21. It's the epilogue that picks up some previous themes, develops, develops them, and then brings the book to a firm conclusion. And it tells us what happened to Peter, one of the main characters in the story. The last time we heard anything substantial about Peter, he was denying Jesus and then weeping bitterly. He blips onto the radar briefly as a witness to the empty tomb, but how does his story end? I mean, reading the final verses of chapter 20, if you look down, sort of makes you feel like the book should end right there. Look at verse 30 of chapter uh, 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It seems like it should end there, but in God's providence, it doesn't end there because the Spirit wants to use John this morning in our lives to answer the so what of the resurrection. What's next? What's now? Chapter 21 is not a sign for unbelievers like the first 20 chapters were. Chapter 21 is an epilogue addressed to us, the church, to describe how Jesus relates to us, 
and what he demands from us. That's the purpose of chapter 21, as opposed to the first 20 chapters. What now? Now that we have believed, most of us in here, what do we do? Trust me, you don't want to leave your seat now. Something really transformative is about to unfold. So grab your popcorn and let's dive in. As we walk into John 21, Peter is despondent. He's aimless in his life. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's been on the road for three years now with Jesus. But now that he's torpedoed his relationship with his dear friend, with his Lord, I'm sure he's filled with shame. Ah, I can't believe I did that. I made a mess of myself and everyone around me. Peter is feeling. He's made choices that keep swirling in his memory. He couldn't make them stop. Maybe you felt those same pangs of bitter, sad regret. But without the power to turn back time and reverse the decision that you made to fix that choice, it's hard to know what to do about that shame that you're feeling for a choice you can't undo. What will Jesus do? knowing full well that Peter has been utterly wrecked by shame. Peter's world has gone gray. Days ago, he had a promising career, especially with his close ties to this renowned rabbi. Two weeks ago, the sky was the limit. And now, it seems like the sea is his destiny. Peter numbs his pain by going back to what he knows best. He's going to get back into the fishing game. I mean, what else can he do? He's got nowhere else to go. So he makes a 75-mile trek from Jerusalem north to this fishing village of Bethsaida. That's where he's from, where he grew up and learned how to fish. And this little fishing village is nestled on the shores of Lake Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. We're more familiar with that term. And he gets a couple of his bros to come with him. You can see that there in verse 2. Peter's going back to something he actually knows how to do. If he couldn't adequately follow Jesus, at least he could get this thing right. It's what he'd done forever, after all. But the fish weren't biting. You can see that in verse 3. The whole night, they got nothing. And Peter must have just been closing in on rock bottom. I failed my friend. I rejected my Lord, and now I can't even catch fish. What is the use? A whole night, no fish. Lower and lower, Peter sunk into the pit of despair, into darkness. But then verse 4, John employs some irony. And we've talked at length about how John loves to use irony to enhance his storytelling, and he does it again here. Verse 4, look at it just as day was breaking. And John isn't just telling us here that, that the sun is cresting the horizon. He's not just telling us that. No, he's hinting at the fact that Peter's personal darkness is about to be invaded with light. The darkness of the sea is nothing in comparison to the darkness of the human condition. We're in the epilogue now at the very end, but this clue should press us back to another daybreak that appears in John's prologue. You've got the epilogue and then the prologue. He's pushing us back to that. Way back in chapter 1, this is what it says. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So very often in John, he's using these layers of meaning. The themes of darkness and light have deeper meanings than just the physical realities of darkness and light. That's what he's doing here in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, as the darkness begins to give way to the light, a figure appears on the shore. He's got a fire burning right behind him. And verse 8 tells us that they were about a football field length from the shore. So in the early morning twilight, it would have been difficult to make out who was standing there on the shore. But just because they couldn't see clearly didn't mean they couldn't hear. And so this voice cries out, Hey, you guys catch anything? The disciples, No. Been out here all night. You get nothing. The guy on the shore. Hey, throw the net on the other side of the boat. I would pay money to hear what those dudes said in that moment. These weathered, experienced, salty fishermen Probably wearily and sarcastically, they yank the net out of the water and throw it over the heads of the other side of the boat. Hours of dark fishlessness transformed in a moment. As soon as John, and he's the disciple there in verse 7 that is termed the disciple whom Jesus loved, as soon as John sees the net, the first instant he sees the net begin to tighten with this gigantic catch, he knows instantly what's going on. It is the Lord. And Peter recognizes it too. He throws a cloak on and jumps into the water. But what, what triggered their memory here? What tipped them off? What confirmed for them that it was, in fact, the Lord that was on the shore? Well, I think the irony of a full net after a fishless night was probably the first clue. But I think it all clicked into place the mo- in this moment because this was not the first time that this had happened. When, when Jesus had called these men to himself, two to three years before, initially called them to himself, he performed a very similar miracle. Here's part of that story from Luke 5. You can follow along on screen. Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep. This Simon is also Peter here. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon, Peter, answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they both began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. Do you see what Peter does there? At the beginning of his relationship with Jesus, he quickly realizes he has no place with this man. And he's not wrong. Jesus is something wholly other, and Peter gets it in this moment. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. But contrast that to the end of Jesus' ministry right here in John 21. Basically the same miracle, but a wildly different response. What does Peter do when he sees a miraculously full net this time around? He sprints towards Jesus. He spent enough time with Jesus to know that there was plenty of room for a Jesus-denying, fearfully running, impulsive man like him. What was once, oh, I got to get away from you, has now transformed into, I got to find a way to get to you. You see, Jesus 
isn't just providing fish for his disciples here. He's actually restoring them into fellowship. Peter, most obviously. And Peter gladly takes the restorative bait, running to the feet of Jesus. I wonder this morning what it is in your life from your past that haunts you. What angry words have you demeaned a spouse with? What harmful things have you done to your body or to someone else's? What shameful acts have you done in secret? Have you ruined a marriage? Have you been unkind to your children? Are you just overcome with guilt? That was the dark reality of Peter's world in that moment as the net flung over his head. <sighs> I can't eat fish. And this joker tells me to throw the net on the other side of the boat. But then, the Lord. It is the Lord. For some of us in here this morning, the Lord is drawing us back. He's restoring us. You've run away before, but this morning you need to find a way, like Peter, to get to him. And there's, there's no need to be cool or distinguished or polished in how you get there. Just come needy. Look at that awkward phrase there in verse 7. Peter threw himself into the sea. The dude has no pretense here at all. Just a deep need and a deep desire to be with Jesus. Peter's response earlier was right, I think, way back at the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. It was right, but I think it was incomplete. Get away from me, Jesus. You are too holy. You're too holy for me to be around. And that's 100% true. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the holy God, we have no right to get anywhere near him. And we never would if it weren't for the fact that, first this morning, Jesus heals our histories. Jesus heals our histories. So after Peter swim runs the 100-yard dash to the shore in the chilly morning waters of the Galilean Sea, he's welcomed by Jesus. And if you're reading carefully, he's welcomed by a painfully familiar sight. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Hmm. Why do you think John takes pains to point out the fact that it was a charcoal fire? None of the other gospel writers do this. So, so I think he's hoping it will be a subtle narrative clue to trigger our memories about something that happened just a couple weeks prior around another charcoal fire. Remember, John loves rich ironies. And he's unveiling one here with this little gem. Here's the text from John 18. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. The last time Peter was in proximity to a charcoal fire. You can follow along on the screen. John 18, 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself around this charcoal fire. So the last time Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire, he was distinct distancing himself from Jesus, embarrassed by him, 
fearful of being associated with him. And Peter did this three times, rejecting his Lord. And now, a few short weeks later, Jesus is beckoning him toward a relational restoration, removing the distance, increasing the intimacy despite Peter's denials of him. Peter would have seen that charcoal fire on the beach, would have been stabbed again by the deep regret of what happened on that chilly night a few weeks prior. But Jesus wants to heal that wound. He wants to heal Peter's history. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus, in his patient, kind, long-suffering way, gives Peter a chance at restoration for all three times he rejected. Verse 16, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Three chances for the three times he rejected. And after that third question, we read that in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? How painful to relive those memories. How healing to be restored by the Messiah. Like digging those tweezers in to remove a splinter from a child's hand. But how ironically healing those painful stabs are to your child. Jesus is healing Peter's wounds. Well, here we have the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the universe, cooking up a beachside breakfast. Morning, guys. You hungry? Jesus meets his deserters with breakfast. His provision here is a symbol of this restored relationship. The resurrected king of glory frying up some fish. Jesus is still serving, even on this side of the resurrection. A million things you could do with a resurrected body, and he is cooking up some fish. Fit, fish. Fish for his friends. <laughs> Jesus is still serving. He restores his broken disciples. He's glad to wash feet, to cook breakfast, to dish out grace in times of need. Jesus restores broken disciples through miraculous provision. 153 fish. And these aren't your little pinfish or minnows. No, John's like, in verse 11, it was 153 large fish. I don't think there's any significance to the number. A lot of people have tried to make a lot of mysterious mythologies about this 153 number. I think it was just a lot of fish is the point that he's making. John's just saying that Jesus will restore you with more than you could ever ask or think. Go get out of your boat this morning and run to Jesus. What does Jesus' restoration of Peter mean for you? Well, first, I think it's a paradigm of soul health. Peter's future usefulness hinged on his healed history. In the same way, in the same way, the work God has for you will not go forward in strength until the light of Jesus' restoration bursts through the darkness of your shame, whatever it is this morning. And this is, this is an ongoing battle for us, to believe and to hold to the fact that Jesus has ruined your shame and he has brought you peace. Get out of your boat. Get to Jesus and be restored. I was doing this just a few hours ago this morning. I was particularly feeling the weight of shame this morning. Feeling like, 
delivering a sermon about shame was an insurmountable hill to climb. My usefulness, and we can debate my usefulness this morning or not later, but my usefulness hinged on whether or not I'd bring my history to Jesus so that he could heal it. By God's grace, I ran to Jesus. You see, restoration is freely offered, but it does require some effort on your part to access. It might mean you need to roll out of bed a little bit earlier this week and run to Jesus. It probably means you need to prioritize this gathering each week as an opportunity to meet with Jesus through his people. But by all means, get to Jesus. To have your history healed is to have your usefulness restored. Despondent Peter had just returned to his old life. He'd gone back to the fishing trade, assuming his usefulness in Jesus' kingdom had dried up with his desertion. But Jesus had other plans. He's healing Peter's history to restore his usefulness. He does the same for us. Second this morning, Jesus restores our usefulness. He heals our history, and he restores our usefulness. He does this for Peter with a specific commission. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a debate about whether he's pointing to the fish there or to the disciples. I'm not sure which he was pointing to, but that's not the point here. He said to him, Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him again, feed my sheep. Now we could go one of two ways here. We could discuss what Jesus tells Peter to do, or we could discuss what Jesus does for Peter. We don't have time for both this morning, but today we're going to explore what Jesus does for Peter rather than what he requires of Peter. And I think that's John's main point here anyway, what Jesus does for Peter. Right before this, I'm sure Peter would have wondered what his future would hold. Could he ever be used by God again? And Jesus makes it clear that there is a path forward for usefulness, even after really shameful brokenness services in your life. Peter, I'm still with you. Peter, I still love you. I still want you. Go serve me. Feed my sheep. But Jesus isn't just ex exhorting Peter here. He's restoring his usefulness. You're a shepherd, Peter. Not just, not just a fisherman. And Jesus isn't just exhorting us this morning. He's restoring us. You're a Jesus follower, Christian. Not just a bank teller. Not just a salesman. Not just a pastor, not just a project coordinator or a nurse or a physical therapist. Get back after it. Jesus is still with you. He says, I still love you. I still want you. Go serve me. Just like Peter, Jesus has a place of responsibility and usefulness for all of us. He's so gracious with us. What are you embarrassed by in your recent past, in your distant past? Maybe it's a professional blunder at work, not any, anything even 
moral. Maybe it's a particularly shameful past or a set of sins that you feel like have come to define you. Just know that Jesus restores your usefulness by healing your history. He's commissioning you this morning to get back on mission, to get back on track with what he's called you to do in your path of life. He doesn't just restore through commissioning. He does it by encouraging too. He does this for Peter with an ironic encouragement. Verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're not going to be able to do this. You're going to stretch out your hands and another is going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus is ironically encouraging Peter here by predicting a grim future for him. Death on a cross. That's what Jesus is saying in so many words here. You might read that and think, encouraging? There is no way that that is encouraging. Finding out as a young man that at some point you yourself are going to be thrown onto a cross and die a violent death, how could that be an encouragement? Well, think about the last time Peter's life and reputation were on the line. He's warming his hands by that charcoal fire. He's surrounded by Roman soldiers. He's swearing. He's trying his best to fit in. He's denying his Lord. Weeks earlier when Peter was under fire, he'd melted. But Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm doing a work in you. You are useful to me. And the very thing you failed at so miserably a few weeks ago you are going, is going to be a pronounced strength of yours when I am done with you. You will not fail me. You will succeed amazingly at bringing God glory, his deserved glory, through your death. So just imagine for Peter in that moment what, what strange confidence that scary prediction would have produced in Peter. What joy in his heart must have stirred. I mean, you've got to sort of understand Peter and appreciate Peter's impulsiveness to capture how meaningful this moment must have been to him. Back in John 13, we read that Peter had told Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And just days later after that in John 13, what is Peter doing? He's denying Jesus. The very thing he swore off. Now, in the wake of his denial... With the aftershocks of shame still rumbling in his soul, Jesus is calming the shame storm in Peter and telling him that he's still useful and that he's going to courageously hold to Christ when the price was even steeper later on in his life. This morning, is there a shame storm rumbling in your soul? Let Jesus calm it and restore you to usefulness. Peter's heart, with a twisted kind of irony, must have just soared in that moment. Were hard times coming? Yeah. Was Jesus still at work in him? Yeah. He does this for us, Trinity, by his Spirit. He promises to change us from glory to glory, to make us new creatures, to utterly transform us by his gospel every day while we still have breath. Jump out of the boat. See his hands and feet and revel that by grace you get healed histories and restored usefulness at the feet of Jesus. 
I read a very powerful statement this week, very short but powerful, written by a dude with a powerful name. His name is Malcolm Muggeridge. He said this, Christianity, from Golgotha onwards, has been the sanctification of failure. Let me read it again. Christianity, from Golgotha onwards, has been the sanctification of failure. Peter learned here, and I hope we learn here today, that it is primarily our failures that create in us a poverty of spirit that make us fit for restoration by Christ. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, If heaven were by merit, it would never be heaven to me. For if I were in it, I should say, I am sure I am here by mistake. I am sure this is not my place. I have no claim to it. But if it be of grace and not of works, then we may walk into heaven with boldness. That Christ restores us ought to free us to be radically transparent about our failure, about our need, and about how Christ has met that need in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his triumphant resurrection. If he had the power to beat death, he has the power to heal your history, no matter what, it, what story it tells, and to restore your usefulness. Well, 75 Sundays ago, we started the Gospel of John on July the 1st, 2018. And I want to end today with the same portion from C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian that we began with on that July 1st morning. This is an interaction between Lucy and Aslan that I pray will be mirrored in our experience with Jesus going forward, and I pray that it has been our experience with Jesus as we have uh, encountered him along the way in the Gospel of John. So picture Lucy gazing up into Aslan's large, wise face. He says, Welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered Aslan. Uh, not because you are, Lucy responded. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. My hope for each of us is that as we encounter the wonders of Jesus, we'll find that he becomes bigger and bigger, crowding out the things of this world so that they go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I pray that he becomes bigger in our lives and our thoughts and our motives. I pray that we all, every day, get out of our boats and come to see Jesus, that we'll find him bigger and better every single day. Now, aren't you glad you didn't leave when the credits began to roll? Jesus had a whole heap of stabilizing, encouraging, restorative words to offer to our souls this morning. It rounded out Peter's story arc, and it answered what's next for us. An everyday battle to delight in having our histories healed, and then being restored and even used by the risen, conquering Christ. And now we'll end like John does in verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you 
You restore us. You heal us. You give us purpose in this life and hope for the next. We are just so, so grateful this morning that you would do this miraculous work in us. Help us never lose the wonder, the wonder of your love for us. That you would look into the eyes of people who have rejected you, who have scoffed at you, who've been ashamed of you and said, come children, come to me, and I will give you eternal life by my side. Lord, help us to enjoy that fact this morning as a rock-solid fact that cannot be altered by anything in this life or the next.